Hello, welcome along. It's a brand new year, but there's still a massive universe to explore. Let's get to it. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan. Thank you so much for being there, for finding, for following, for sharing us. This is your one-stop shop. We take a quick jaunt... A spin around the solar system to find all those science secrets that are lurking nearby. This week, we'll hear why dogs are absolute geniuses. You might have guessed this before. We'll really go into it today. It turns out that your dog knows what you're feeling. Particularly when you're a bit more stressed, when you need some love, they know when to do that. We've got Clara Wilson, a dog expert, on to tell us more. The dogs are actually doing something that as scientists, we're trying to catch up and kind of, if 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 only we could ask them exactly what it is that they're smelling, because that's the big question. And we'll get a lesson from the smartest school in the solar system, Deep Space High. This week, we're hearing from Professor Pulsar all about what the Earth is made of. This is the mantle, nearly 3,000 kilometres thick, a big gloopy mass of molten rock. Where it pushes against the crust, you can get moving layers called tectonic plates. And where you have moving tectonic plates, up on the surface, you can get... Volcanoes! And I've got your questions to answer as always. This week, it's all about trees, how they help you breathe, and why it rains so much. It's all coming up in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's start off by seeing how 2023 is going so far with your science in the news. Temperatures for January have reached an all-time high in many countries across Europe. High temperatures in Poland, Spain, Latvia, Belarus, Denmark, many, many more were very high for this time of the year. Uh, This comes as after last year, you might remember, a lot of countries said it was the hottest year on record. This is worrying signs with the climate crisis. We've heard how the Earth is getting hotter, but to actually see it, to feel it all around us, it's very, very serious. We need to think more about this, and I know lots of experts are doing exactly that. Also, volunteers are needed to spot sharks at home. Underwater cameras have been put in the sea all around Wales, and now scientists need people to watch the footage to see what they can spot. What sharks, skates and rays can be seen. Maybe this is something that you're interested in. Do you want to spend hours looking for sharks? Give it a look up online. It all happened in Wales. You'll be able to find it. See if you can help out. Spot what is lurking in the ocean. And talking about creatures, London Zoo have been counting their animals. At the start of every year they do this, a census to see who's living there. There are about 300 different species they've found. It usually takes about a week to count all the creatures. And they've got new ones this year, like a western lowland gorilla, two new tiger cubs, and they've counted more than 14,000 creatures there. We've got something brand new on the show now for you. Every week, we like to hear from some of our favourite science genius friends. We've travelled back to the age of the dinosaur recently. We'll go to Deep Space High a little later on. We've chatted to Curious Kate, Professor Hallux. Right now, it's all about the A to Z of engineering. We're learning about something brand new every week. How it's made, what goes into it, what it's used for. Right now on the A to Z of engineering, it's time to spin that big old wheel and find out what letter we're looking at today. 
Engineering Academy, where we're exploring an A to Z of everything engineering. Let's spin the wheel and see where we're engineering today. Over to Engers to spin the wheel. It's P, and P is for paper. Thanks, Engers. Let's start with a little 101. The UK has a long history in paper, with the world's first mechanical paper machine installed at Frogmore Paper Mill in 1803. The paper industry still plays an important role in the UK's economy, employing almost 60,000 people and generating some £12 billion each year. Paper is an amazing product. We use it every day, at home and in school for learning, crafts and personal hygiene, and out and about for everyday life. For newspapers, food and packaging. But how's it made and who makes it? Over to you, Engers. To find out more, we took a trip to Kemsley in Kent, home to DS Smith, one of the UK's largest paper manufacturers. And when we say large... We mean enormous! Kemsley sits on a 150-acre site. That's more than 100 football pitches, making it the largest paper mill in the UK. Come on, let's go inside to find out more. We're inside the paper mill now, and the first thing to notice is it's very loud. I'm having to wear ear defenders so I don't damage my hearing. Quality paper needs quality fibre, and the fibre they use here at Kemsley comes from recycled paper, some of which you and I might recycle in our homes. Not all paper is made from recycling. Other paper mills might get their fibre from trees, arriving as logs on huge lorries. Back at Kemsley, having been collected from local authorities, retailers and printers, the recycled paper arrives here on these enormous lorries and is then sorted and checked for quality. And here's an amazing fact. Over one million tonnes of old paper pass through the mill every year. Once it has been sorted, the bales of paper travel up a conveyor belt to a machine called a pulper, which is a bit like a giant food mixer. As well as paper being added, contaminants like staples, sticky tape and polystyrene are removed and the whole thing is mixed with water. The pulped mixture is then pumped onto something called a forming wire that encourages all the fibres to go in one direction. At this stage, it's a very watery mix, containing less than 1% paper. So, as you can imagine, that water needs to be removed or otherwise, well, the end product will be a little floppy. The forming wire moves across a series of ceramic foils and vacuums that reduce the amount of water in the solution to 75%. More water is then squeezed out by a press, which also compresses the fibres in the solution, so they intertwine to make a smooth and stronger material. At this point, the water content is still around 50%, so the journey hasn't finished yet. 
starch is now mixed in to add strength, and our watery mix then passes through heated cylinders, which dries out the solution into something which is more recognisable as paper. So far, from bales of recycled paper to the dryers, our paper has travelled 400 metres and is now ready to be wound into enormous reels, each of which can be 7 metres wide, weigh 30 tonnes and contain 30 kilometres of paper. With the winders moving at 82 miles per hour, which is faster than a car on the motorway, all in all, it takes just 37 minutes to produce a 30-tonne reel. Pretty speedy, eh? Once reeled, the paper is taken to a warehouse and when ready to go out to customers, automated guided vehicles pick up the reels and load them onto the lorries and off they go. Thanks, Engers, for the lowdown on how paper is made. Did you know there's an enormous range of different papers? There's plain paper for writing and printing, paper for carrier bags and medical uses, and also cardboard, which is used for delivery packages like pizza boxes and home deliveries. There's even a special type of paper that's used for coating plasterboard, which is used for building homes and offices. How many different types of paper can you find in your home? One of the cool things about DS Smith is that it's working towards a circular economy using closed-loop recycling. Now, whilst that sounds fancy, it just means that by using recycled fibre, a cardboard box can leave the factory and return as recycling 14 days later. How amazing is that? What's also amazing are the people who work here in the paper mill, and there's a multitude of jobs to be done. As well as machine operators and technicians who keep the equipment running smoothly, there's logistics experts who get the paper ready for transport. And not forgetting the lorry drivers who bring the recycled paper here and take away the fresh paper. Let's hear more from someone who's got it wrapped up in the paper business, from tea bags to toilet paper. Hi, my name is uh, Stuart Rook and I am uh, Operations Excellence Director at Deer Smith Kemsley Paper Mill. My main role is training development, looking at future business, bringing apprentices into the business, graduates, and also supporting the training plan for the 440 employees at Kemsley. I'm also lead at Continuous Excellence, which is lean strategies and lean manufacturing, so we can improve our processes and make our business more profitable in the future. Deer Smith, we make paper, but predominantly not paper. Uh, paper is really the title, so we can make bags. Uh, we make over 400 million paper bags a year for key places like Nando's, KFC, McDonald's, Primark, Boots. We also make plasterboard with the paper that goes on the plasterboard for the building supplies and also make the paper for packaging and uh, supply Amazon, which everybody knows quite well. So after leaving school, I wasn't sure what career path to follow, but then I joined the Royal Navy where I gained my engineering qualifications. And then from that, when I left the Navy, uh, seven years after joining, uh, I fell into paper. It wasn't a career path I was thinking about. So I joined a tissue mill, uh, making toilet rolls that we all know around, Andrex and uh, the Ultrasoft tissue. And then from that, I got headhunted to join a teabag company. Uh, used to be called J.R. Crompton, so they make tea bags for PG Tips, Setley. And then eight years ago, I joined uh, Kemsley Paper Mill as a production manager. And then there was site manufacturing manager. Uh, sole responsibility for the, uh, the three paper machines on site. Uh, and the last six months, I've just moved into my operational excellence director role. You know, one line I always use is, at Deer Smith, you know, by 2025, we aim to take one billion pieces of problem plastics off the supermarket shelves. Uh, and I think, you know, for our young kids as they grow up, we've really got to start looking at sustainability and improving the environment. I would say the, the paper industry and Deer Smith is, is a very fluid and also Kemsley. You get involved in a lot of departments from capital projects to training development, from apprentices to graduates. 
to health and safety, to quality, to business calls. So I'd say it's a very varied uh, profession, uh, which is good. You know, we're not we're not people where we you know put square pegs in square holes, so to speak. Uh, we can actively get involved in the paper machines as well, uh, mentoring, coaching, looking at improvement plans, looking at you know a five year business plan for Kemsley. So I would say, if somebody looked at my diary and said, you know, you know, is your week the same week in week out? It's not. And I think sometimes also in the paper industry, there is a lot of variability. So you can have a good plan at eight o'clock in the morning but quite easily go off that roadmap and do something different. So, and that's why I enjoy it. And that's why after 20 years, I still get out of bed with a smile on my face and enjoy what I do. The paper industry has got an aging workforce. And from that, we're really actively driving apprentices and graduates. So it's really good to see the new paper makers coming into the business. You know, the 17, 18 year olds on the start of the journey that I took 20 years ago. So that really infuses me. I think on the flip side of that is a lot of people stay in the industry. Uh, so it's just a one person who left the mill. He worked for the mill 50 years. So he came into the mill as a 16-year-old uh, and left the mill at 67. So it shows me what a great industry it is. Uh, and Kemsley's a small town. That's the thing. You know, we've got our own fire station. So, you know, you've got finance people, you've got HR, you've got uh, health and safety, you've got production. You know, we've got over 80 engineers on site. Uh, we've got training development. So there's a lot of really skilled people on site, which really makes it that, you know, it's almost like an island, an island and a, and a town driving Deer Smith forward. So Deer Smith, we're investing strategically into rumors renewable energy, you know, green electricity, energy efficiency, you know, converting the steam from production to heat our premises, purchasing green electricity, anaerobic digester expansions and stuff like that. So the technology is out there and, and Deer Smith is really investing in that to make us, you know, net zero by 2050. Just a couple of fun facts. You know, we've got 4,000 motors on site. Uh, the smallest motor is 0.5 kilowatt, which is, which is a hairdryer in people's houses. The biggest motor we've got is 1.5 megawatts, and that can actually run six Formula E cars for the whole race. The biggest pump we've got on site can deliver over 100,000 liters per minute. So if you break it down 50 meter Olympic swimming pool, we can fill that in 27 minutes with our pump supply. If you've got a fire engine to do it, it'd take them 17 hours. And that's our take on the letter P. It's been a pleasure talking paper. If you'd like to check out some other types of engineering, why not check out petroleum, pharmaceutical, plastics, product safety, propulsion, or public health engineering? Join us again next time to spin the wheel and explore another letter in the A to Z of engineering. Engineer Academy. We will spin the wheel again next week and get another letter that we can make more stuff out of in the A to Z of engineering. Right now, let's do your questions. If you've got something sciencey that you want answered on the show, and it could be about anything, by the way, anything sciencey. If it's rattling around your head as we go into a new year, if it's something that you've been thinking about over the holiday break, if you want this sorted in 2023, let me know. The best way is to leave it as a voice note. If you get to the free Fun Kids app, you can record it through there. You can do it at funkidslive.com, nice and easy. Let's get one of those to start us off. My name is Oscar. Why do trees help you breathe? So how do trees help you breathe? Thank you for this, Oscar. It's all to do with photosynthesis. It's one of the most important science reactions that happens on planet Earth. You see, when you breathe in, you take air into your lungs. The oxygen from that air then moves into your blood to keep your organs working. 
When they work, they make something called carbon dioxide, which you then breathe out. Trees do the exact opposite, you see. They need carbon dioxide to live, to photosynthesize. They need carbon dioxide and sunlight to survive. So they take the carbon dioxide that you make and they make oxygen that you need. So it's one big cycle. And when trees are doing this, they help clean the air too by sucking up all that carbon dioxide. Thank you so much for that, Oscar, and for sending over your voice note. You can also leave a question as a review on Apple Podcasts. That's what Henry has done. He is 10, who wants to know, uh, why does it rain so much in the UK? If you don't live in the UK, it does rain quite a lot. It doesn't rain as much as it does in other countries, but it can rain a lot of the time. You see, most of the wind, Henry, that reaches the UK comes from the west, which means it has to travel all the way from pretty much America. It moves over the huge Atlantic Ocean, which is a long, long, very wet way. It's a sea. As the air moves along, it absorbs some of that water. When it reaches the UK, hits land, it gets warmer, so it rises because hot air rises. It's lighter. When it gets too high, though, it gets colder. The, the air and the water gets heavier, and then that water falls to the ground as rain. So that's why the UK gets quite a lot of rain, because we are an island in, because we are an island in the middle of the ocean, and we get a lot of wind that comes from the west over the Atlantic. Thank you so much, Henry, for the question. If there is something you want answered next week... Get to funkidslive.com. We've got a really easy way that you can send that over, that you can be a star of the show and let me know through a voice note. It's time for this week's Dangerous Dam, which is all about a creature you might not expect to be as mean as it is. The horsefly is found all over the world, from deserts to meadows, from near the sea to up in the mountains. They look like a regular fly that you might see at home, but they can be quite bigger, a little bit chunky, and they do look mean. And their bites can be wicked, extremely painful. You see, the horsefly bites into you in a completely different way to other creatures. They have razor-sharp jaws which cut into your skin. Most other flying biters out there, they pierce the skin. This cuts straight through. Now, when mosquitoes bite, and mosquitoes are one of the most dangerous animals on the planet, they release a mild painkiller. They do that so you don't notice... It's worse in the long run, but you don't really realise that you've been stung or bitten. Horseflies don't do that at all. They don't have any of that anaesthetic, that painkiller. The bites can be very painful. And when they lock in, they go to town, the horsefly. They suck your blood and they'll keep on sucking. They're also vectors for diseases, which means they carry things. They can bite a creature that has an illness and then they take it with them through the air and give it to another creature when they bite them. They move diseases from one species to another. And that is why it's a disease carrier with its razor-sharp jaws. It doesn't give you any painkillers. That is why the horsefly goes straight onto our Dangerous Dan list. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, this is fascinating, especially if you have a dog. Have you ever noticed that they can be sweeter, they can be more loving, and they generally know when you're feeling a bit low and a bit stressed. Why is that? We'll find out with Clara Wilson, who is a PhD researcher from Queen's University in Belfast, who's good enough to join us. Clara, thank you for being there. Hello. 
So just tell us what made you start looking into this? What first gave you the idea that maybe there's something going on with dogs knowing about our stress levels? Yeah, so we've known for a while now that dogs have this incredible sense of smell. And around 20 years ago or so, people were beginning to pick up that dogs were noticing different things changing in their body. So it started with dogs seemingly being able to smell when people, for example, were sick or even uh, were developing things like cancers. Um, So we know already that dogs can smell different changes that happen within the body, but this had really been focused on disease state. So we wanted to ask the question if they could actually smell a change associated also with our emotions. Um, And in this case, we wanted to look at stress. So just looking back before stress, then we know that dogs can can smell when we're unwell. What are they sniffing out there? If we have some different illnesses, do they give off a particular odour? Yeah, so it's a really cool area. There's still a lot to figure out. And the cool thing is that the dogs are actually doing something that as scientists, we're trying to catch up and kind of if if only we could ask them exactly what it is that they're smelling, because that's the big question. They're acting as very good detectors of different diseases. And we would love to be able to build things like a machine or a blood test or a breath test that could copy what the dog is doing. So that's the focus of a lot of this work is to try and figure out what it is. For the general premise is that we're emitting smells all the time and we're not consciously aware of a lot of those, but the dogs can actually smell them. And different diseases change different processes within the body and subsequently change our smell in different ways. Now, this this might be slightly outside of your research, but do we know why our bodies are always giving off different smells all the time? Is there a reason for that or is it just the natural uh, mechanics and biology of what's going on with our body? Yeah, so a lot of it is natural mechanics. Um, and then there are what we would call kind of chemo signals, which are these signals that fly under the radar of our conscious attention that may also help to communicate. Um, so with stress, especially, that's an interesting question because it's not clear whether the dogs in our study were actually interpreting the smell as stress or just noticing that there was a change in smell. So we know that a lot of the smell that they would be picking up was just to do with our biology and mechanics when people's heart rates and blood pressure increase, our breathing rate changes and it actually changes our metabolic processes for a minute there and and the dogs are probably picking up on that. But the broader question of whether they actually understand that signal because we're actually giving off kind of cues about ourselves that other people even may be able to smell but aren't consciously aware of is a really interesting area for future research. And uh, we know that dogs eyesight isn't as good as ours, uh, but their their hearing's amazing and and their sense of smell. I mean, they can smell almost 10,000 times better than some humans and you're testing all of this. So what did you do with this idea? How did you try and figure out what dogs were telling from our stress levels? Yeah, so I think you're exactly right. And I think that's why I find this so interesting because it's almost as if we perceive the world through our eyes because that's our primary sense. But the dogs actually might be kind of seeing, even the word seeing is so visual, but seeing the world through their noses. So they also get a sense of things that have happened in the past and things um, that aren't happening right now, whereas we're very kind of moment to moment through our eyes. So I think that that's a really interesting way to look at it. But what we wanted to see is if dogs could tell the difference between 
taking people's breath right before and right after they became stressed. So we made them do very difficult maths to induce that stress. Um, and it wasn't a lot of fun for them, <laughs> but the stress was very, uh, the math test was very successful in getting them pretty stressed out. And the cool thing about this study is that the dogs were smelling only ever between a single person's breath in each session. So they saw lots of different people across the course of the study, but in every single session, they were just looking at, for example, your breath right before you did a difficult math task. And then only four minutes later, right after you'd finished the difficult math task, and they were able to tell the difference between your breath with only a four minute difference. So that tells us that something in the smell of your breath had changed within those four minutes. Uh, what do you mean they were able to tell the difference? So uh, this is me. I have The dog smelled my breath. I've then done the maths test. The dog smells my breath again, and it's not recognizing that it's me directly until uh, a few minutes later. Is that what you're saying? So the way that we train the dogs is um, they're trained like scent detection dogs, like the ones that you might see in an airport, like a sniffer dog. So the cool thing about dogs, too, is that we can really get an insight into how they're perceiving things because we can train them to do behaviors. So these dogs were trained to sniff a lineup of samples, and that would be the breath and the sweat from you before and after your test. And what I would do is I would show them your stressed breath at the beginning, and I would say, this is what you're looking for. And then in the lineup, they would see um, the same stress breath, although we would take multiple from the same time point to make sure that they weren't just kind of using their own smell from having sniffed that example. So they'd see this, this your stressed breath taken from the same time point, also the breath from four minutes before as an option, and then just a control blank that was the materials that we collect the samples on without any breath. And what they could do is they could match the sample of the stress, even though your same breath was also present. And they would tell me, which one they were picking by doing what we call an alert behavior. And we trained these dogs. They were all pet dogs, but they were trained very well to become sniffer dogs. And they would give me their alert behavior. So for two of our dogs, um, they would sit in front of the sample to say, this is the one that I think is the same. And for the other two, they would do a stand freeze, which means that they stand with their nose very close to the sample for about three seconds. And that way, over multiple trials, we can give a clear answer as to whether they're perceiving these things as the same or different. Uh, what dog breeds did you use? So the cool thing about this study is that we got to work with people in the community. So a lot of times we would rely on trained working dogs for these kinds of studies because we kind of know that they they know what's up and they've done a lot of the training before. But we actually worked with pet dogs. Um, so we had a real mix of breeds. In the final study, we had a cockapoo called Winnie, a, a cocker spaniel called Trio, um, a lurcher called Fingal, and um, a little mixed terrier breed called Sook. So we had a real diverse uh, amount of breeds. And I think that really goes to show that, you know, any dog can do this type of work as long as they've got the, the work ethic and the temperament to enjoy it. Brilliant dog names. Yeah. Um, does that mean that if, if, we, if we've got one pet dog, for instance, and that, that dog is so immersed in who we are, what we're like, how our breath normally smells, that it would be very good straight away at knowing that we're a bit stressed and maybe feeling a bit low? So that's really the big next question. So we wanted to really strip it down and take it into the laboratory and do it in a very controlled setting. And we're just answering this very first puzzle piece. So really to, to delve into those areas, we first wanted to know, can they actually smell it? And that's what our study was looking at. Like, do these two things smell different to the dog? And we've shown now that they did. 
Um, but then the question is, okay, well, what does that mean for our pet dogs? So all of the dogs did incredibly well on the test from the very first time they were showed it. They weren't trained specifically on the test smells, the stress. They were just trained on easier versions of the task. And the very first time they saw people stressed and relaxed breath, they were very capable at telling them apart, which suggests to me that without prior training, the dogs are recognizing these things as different. However, we don't know because we were doing this like sniffer dog study, we don't know how they feel about them or whether they recognize that as necessarily meaning that someone is feeling stressed. So the next steps would be to see, you know, how are dogs interpreting this smell? What are they picking up in terms of uh, communications and those kinds of things? So that will be exciting to look at in future, hopefully. Now, this goes against everything science is about. You're about uh, having an idea and testing it, not necessarily uh, making a hard and fast decision uh, about maybe one study that you've done. But we know that the dogs that we have today have been bred through years and years and years and years and years to be loving to humans. If you had to say, if you had to make a guess right now, why would you say dogs can smell changes in our stress levels? What would be the benefit for them to be able to do that? Yeah, so I think that there's definitely a kind of adaptive value to being able to do that. I think being able to navigate um, alongside humans and be able to respond appropriately to our emotions is probably in their best interests. Um, and I think a lot of animals do communicate through these kind of chemo signals, either consciously or unconsciously. What's cool about this is that we now know that the dogs are consciously able to tell those two things apart. Um, but I think a lot of how they respond to it may also be learned. You know, if if every time you're feeling stressed, you may either want more cuddles and maybe your dog will learn to be more affectionate. But maybe if you're stressed, you're maybe a bit more short with your dog. They might decide that when that smell happens, it's best that they stay out of your way. Yeah. So it works very well as well for them in terms of navigating their environment to make sure that they're, you know, responding appropriately and the relationship can work as well as possible. Do you think the same happens with cats? Perhaps I have a cat and she tends to know when I'm feeling a bit rough. I mean, sometimes she'll just scratch me, but is it the same with cats? So cats have a very, very good sense of smell as well. And we sometimes laugh about this in the dog scent detection world because hypothetically some other animals um, could do this type of research, but cats, I don't think, have the training side so much. I don't think they'd want to do 30 trials in a row. <laughs> um, so I think it's very likely that cats are smelling um, or able to pick up on these smells, although it's never been tested, so I can't say for sure. Um, but yeah, it's just in terms of like the different domestication history alongside humans i think dogs have been bred to be much more kind of cooperative with us whereas cats are very loving and cooperative but they may not necessarily have the same interpretation of the smells as the dogs do uh, just lastly quickly how long as a scientist how long does a, a test like this take from idea to having some form of conclusion so I did this study um, for about all three years of my PhD, although, of course, in the middle we had COVID and collecting breath was notably trickier. Um, but really, these kinds of training studies, there is a lot of front end on the training side with the dogs. Um, it's not it, the, the these types of paradigms, you know, they probably can smell the difference, but it's them being able to tell me that they can smell it that involves a lot of training. Um, so definitely, uh, I would say a minimum of about a year, <laughs> but it it really depends on the type of training protocol that you use and what your research question is. Amazing. Clara Wilson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
Before we say goodbye to the first episode of 2023, uh, let's fly up to the smartest school in the solar system. For the last few weeks, we've been getting lessons from Professor Pulsar at Deep Space High. Now, Deep Space High is a school floating in the solar system, all right? It's got this big window, panoramic. It can see the whole of Earth. It looks straight onto us. And Professor Pulsar has been giving lessons on what makes the Earth look like it does. This week, it's all about its structure, how it's made. Deep Space High, Earthwatch, with support from the Royal Astronomical Society. These are the Yorkshire Moors. God's own country, Sam. No finer place in the universe, in my opinion. If you say so. If you want to learn about planets, the best place to start is with the one you're standing on. We can check out what planets are made of by looking right under our feet. Any ideas? Um... Grass, mud and sheep poo. I was thinking a little bit further under than that. 60 kilometres thick, this crust. Bit more than you get on a loaf of bread. Some planets have thick crusts, others have thin ones. Where we hit the next level, things start getting interesting. This is the mantle, nearly 3,000 kilometres thick. A big, gloopy mass of molten rock. Where it pushes against the crust, you can get moving layers called tectonic plates. And where you have moving tectonic plates, up on the surface you can get... Volcanoes! That's right! Now, I don't suggest you get too near to an erupting one, but if you watch a video of a volcano erupting, that fiery molten rock has come from the mantle. It's the insides of the planet. That's so cool! So all this stuff down here is... Lava. Same stuff, although we call it magma when it's under the crust. Hold on, we're getting near the core. Made of iron and nickel, it's a bubble in 5,000 degrees Celsius. So even on a wintry day, deep under our feet, it's hot enough to melt rocks. Exactly. We think all planets have a core. Again, some will be big, others much smaller. But probably all are made of similar stuff, we think. We know all of the planets are made out of the same stuff. They could be made of, I don't know, jam or cats. I agree, that's theoretically possible. But look at it this way. Thousands of meteorites have landed on Earth and none of them have had jam or cats in them. They're mostly made of the exact same compounds inside the Earth. Hey, you can see real meteorites in museums. Sometimes you can even hold them. These days you can even buy them for a few pounds. Great idea for a birthday present. Hey, Pulsar, how do you organise a party in space? You plan it! Get it? This expedition's going to seem longer than the orbit of Jupiter if you keep telling jokes like that. Deep Space High, Earthwatch, with support from the Royal Astronomical Society. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash deepspacehigh. And that is it for this week's episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. I've loved kicking off the year learning 
why dogs love us so much, why they're absolute geniuses. Thank you so much for being there. If you've enjoyed the show and you want to send a question in, maybe next week, so I can answer it for you, the best way is to get to funkidslive.com. We've got this really easy system where you can drop over a voice note. It's the best way to do it. You can be a star of next week's podcast. If you've liked any of the episodes that you've heard so far, we've had Deep Space High, we've had the A to Z of Engineering. You can find them all over the place. Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. They're at funkidslive.com and on the free Fun Kids app. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen to it all over the country on your DAB digital radio and at funkidslive.com.